one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. How are you doing there? Welcome to the David McWilliams podcast, the podcast that every week tries to make economics and us global economics a little bit more comprehensible, a little bit less full of jargon, and ultimately a little bit more relevant to you. Now this week, we're going to talk about possibly the biggest threat to our prosperity in the next 24 months. And that is the increasing, the ongoing and increasing risk of a conflict in the Middle East, which the Americans would like to be limited to the United States and Iran. But as we know, and as we saw in the war in Iraq, once you upset the status quo, once you ignite the tinderbox in the Middle East, all sorts of other conflicts which were dormant come right back at you. So we're going to talk about Iran and the United States and the Middle East and this conflict, but we're going to go a little bit wider and we're going to also see how that will impact on the global economy. Before we begin, I want to just mention that this episode is brought to you thanks to our Patreon supporters. And to help support the content, and perhaps more importantly, to unlock exclusive comment and scenes and footage and episodes, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. As always, I'm joined by my old mate in Dublin, John Davis. John, how are you, man? Very good, Mark. I, I can see that you're sporting a nice uh, rosy tan there. <laughs> it's the Irishman's tan, John, as you know. Uh, redheads are not uh, custom-made for this type of weather. And in fact, as most of the family stay out in the sun, uh, the dad stays inside, usually. But yesterday, I got caught out for about five minutes and I now look like a beetroot. <laughs> You're there you go. Exactly. I look like a rasher. I look like I used to do down Sea Point in the 70s, you know? Yeah. Anyway, and uh, we've also joined uh, in Chicago by our economic wonderkind, Finn McLaughlin. Finn, how are you? Yeah, not too bad. How are things? Good. Are you are you a sweltering over there in the in the Midwestern heat in the midsummer? Oh, I am, yeah. I'm in an apartment now with no AC and no sign of getting one anytime soon. So just gonna hold hold out till winter. Listen, I'll give you some advice as an older man. Just get a job. Give up all this academic <laughs> stuff. Get a job. Let's kick off. 
It's a tense standoff in the Gulf. Merchant vessels are on a high state of alert following an incident earlier this week in which a British oil tanker was impeded by boats belonging to Iran. We are breaking news from the Middle East at this hour. Iran says that it shot down an American drone flying over its territory, raising fears that a larger military conflict could break out in the region. Iran says it has raised its uranium enrichment levels past 4.5%. That purity level is beyond the limit allowed under the international nuclear agreement. Well, US President Donald Trump says Tehran, quote, better be careful, but Iran has a warning of its own, saying enrichment levels could be increased to even higher levels if it doesn't see any sanctions relief. Iran is in big trouble right now. Their economy is crashing. It's coming to a crash. They're trying to bring soldiers back home because they can't pay them. A lot of bad things are happening to them. And it's very easy to straighten out, or it's very easy for us to make it a lot worse. So there he is, Mac. That's our friend Donald Trump shooting his mouth off and throwing his weight around as per usual. But I wonder in this instance, is he a little bit out of his depth? I mean, this current tension has been rising pretty much since he got into power. But the conflict and the the bad blood relationship between Iran and the US stretches back much, much further than that and is much deeper and a lot more complicated. So I want to get your take on a couple of things. First of all, why is Trump stirring the hornet's nest now? Like, as far as I can see, the US, after years of conflict in, in the Middle East, neither has the capacity nor the stomach for another full-on conflict in the Middle East? And secondly, what kind of economic impact will it have? And how will it affect us? Okay, well, I think it's a, it's really fascinating what is going on in the Middle East, but fascinating and I think terrifying at the same time. And rather than focus on your man, Trump, let's focus on three big relationships in the Middle East, and then we'll see where Trump fits into the whole thing. Okay. So the best thing is to look at the conflict the potential conflict in Iran from the geopolitical sense, as in who are the vested interests in the region, then look at it from the significant superpower relationships, i.e. who is behind the vested interests. And then the third way is to look at it and the sort of sectarian interreligious struggles, particularly within the Islamic power bases there, Saudi Arabia and Iran. And then finally, let's come to oil. Because what happens is we always used to start with oil in the West and work backwards from that. But I think it's more interesting to look at all the various different power plays and then look at oil and then look at the economy. So, Mac, the whole Middle East is a fascinating thing. And you've, you've got a good insight into the Middle East because you were you lived there for a while. You were in Israel? Yeah, I did a, I did a strange thing. I was the Israeli economist for UBS. Okay, now how weird of a title is that? Fancy. UBS is the large Swiss bank that I worked for. And in 1994 and 95, just after Bill Clinton brokered the deal with, which came from the Norway deal with Yasser Arafat and Rabin, and there was a huge amount of enthusiasm for the peace process, the fact that the Palestinians were recognized, the fact that the Israelis were making peace, the fact that the rest of the Arabs were going to make peace with the Israelis. There was a real new dawn sense. And of course, what happened was the bank I worked for decided that there was going to be an economic dividend there and they needed somebody to be the economist for the region. And what happened was my boss came in and he said, look, anybody want to go there? And of course, all the English lads wouldn't go. 
<laughs> and I said, I said, geez, I'll go. Well, yeah, why not? Good. Why not? So I found myself uh, in a flat in a place called Ramakan, which is a suburb of Tel Aviv. And uh, I decided to take a flat in a normal area, not one of those sort of compounds where Westerners go. And, or kibbutz. Uh, the fl- yeah, well, I don't know, certainly not a kibbutz. And uh, although I would, I would have liked to actually have seen more of the kibbutzes. But anyway, and I, I got the flat and it was in one of those kind of breeze block apartment blocks, not particularly pretty. And it transpired that everybody else in the apartment block, maybe 50 flats, everybody else were Iraqi Jews who had, whose parents are actually themselves had been kicked out of Iraq in 1948, 1949, out of Baghdad, probably one of the oldest Jewish communities in the world. And they'd all gone to Israel and loads of them have settled in this particular town. And I ended up living amongst them. And they were as fascinated by me as I was for them. And every night after work, we used to come home and talk to the grannies and the parents and everything and have some food out in the courtyard in the back of the apartment block. And we talked politics. And their view was they were Iraqis. They had been kicked out. They were originally refugees. They had been there for thousands of years. They had a really good understanding of the Arab psyche, of Israel's role in the various different conflicts. They were really subtle and they were complex in their analysis. And we just sit around uh, chatting every night for hours on end. And that gave me a fascination with the region, maybe a better understanding of the Israelis and the various different complexions of Israelis, and ultimately an angle on Iraq and an angle on Iran, because there was also a lot of Iranian Jews kicked out as well. You think people don't realize that 800,000 Jews were kicked out of Arab countries in a period of over less than a year in the late 40s, early 50s. And they all came as refugees to Israel and they come with their own stories. And I heard those stories and those stories maybe informed me. So I've always been interested in that neck of the woods. And I go back very, very regularly uh, and I meet up with them and we have a laugh together. We have a chat together. And what I've noticed over the years, John, is in 1995, Rabin is assassinated in Tel Aviv. And since 1995, the movement in Israel for peace, the left wing, the peace now has been totally decimated. So the Israel maybe I lived in was a totally different Israel to the Israel now. But what was also an added complication I didn't realize is that one of the reasons that this big bank moved into Israel very quickly was because I'd obviously remembered I'd done all that Russian stuff years ago. The bank moved into Israel very quickly as well because most of the Russian oligarchs who were looting uh, Russia at the time happened to be Jewish. They got Israeli passports. So the bank was following the money as well as the politics. But that was it. So that maybe that's, I've been interested ever since. That's a fantastic insight you got there. Yeah, no, it was great. And it gives you, it gives you a sense of, you know, people's lives and testimony and what happened and who was doing this and that. And of course, then it opens up the whole region to you. And it's like everything. Once you learn things when you're young, you become fascinated all your life. Yeah, there certainly seems to be like this conflict dates back years. And it's not just an American-Iranian thing. It's it's all the other countries and, and the the religious aspect to it, etc. But you're right. Uh, oil is always seems to be at the uh, at the root of of all evil. Well, you can, you know, look, you know, if 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 Iran produced cabbages, there'd be nobody there, right? We know that. <laughs> okay, like if Iraq was a singular exporter of tomatoes, there would have no been no war in Iraq. We can come back to that. And actually, it's a thing in 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 economics, John, called the called the curse of resources that. We think countries are 
unbelievably lucky if they find a resource like oil. But actually, if you look at the evidence, very few countries have managed their oil find in a systematic and ultimately a way that benefits the whole population. The only country is Norway. The Norwegians have actually found oil and done great things with it. What happens is if you find oil, everybody wants a piece of it. So the history of Iran, the history of Iraq, the history of Saudi Arabia is the history of what happens when, when you find oil and the colonial influence, the commercial influence, and everybody wanting a piece of you. You see the same thing in Venezuela. You see the same thing in Nigeria. So we could talk about that, but that's an interesting thing. Yeah, it's like the curse of the lottery winner. Exactly, you're exactly right. You know, uh, when somebody wins the lottery, everybody in the village wants to know them. And everybody in the town wants to know them. And ultimately, everyone's a piece of the money. So that's the one thing. The second thing I've always found interesting about August, John, is that it's appropriate to talk about geopolitics in August because so many wars start in August and September. I've been looking back at this. First World War. Really? Second World War starts. Okay, think of it. The Iraq War, the first one, starts in August. You think about the coup against Gorbachev was in August. The Soviet troops went into Prague in August. Why is that? It's very strange. I don't know. The Russians, I was just looking about something about Russia the other day, and I remember that the Russians had their conflict, the most recent conflict with Georgia in August. So there is a thing. August is a dangerous month. Also, the vast majority of massive, massive financial crises start in August. The savings and loans crisis started in August. Everyone's away in holidays, is it? I think (laughs) there is a sense. No, I just think there is a sense that... People's planning about the year. August is a very unusual month, so that's why schools go back in September. There's a sort of a new chapter idea in August. Yeah. And certainly in terms of military conflicts, August has played a much larger role than any other month in the calendar. Worth watching. That's an interesting factoid. It is an interesting factoid. So let's just talk about our first thing in the Middle East, the relationships within the zone. There's four major powers, and each one of them are in a transition, right? The first power is Iran, second is Turkey, third is Saudi Arabia, and the fourth is Israel. So those guys basically are the four major military powers in the area. Israel is about to go into a rerun of its election in September. So there's a heightened sense of geopolitics, there's a heightened sense of an election, there's a heightened sense of where Israel goes next. And obviously Israel is an implacable enemy of Iran. Second one is Turkey, up until recently, was a staunch ally of the United States in the area. Yeah. Although Turkey is now, under Erdogan, I would say the second or third incarnation of Erdogan, because the first incarnation 15 years ago was very much pro-American. Think about it. Turkey is the biggest army in NATO. Biggest army in NATO outside the United States. Right. Okay. It was involved in the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is why Kennedy managed to do a deal with Khrushchev trading Turkish missiles for Russian-Cuban missiles. It's always been an American ally ever since the revolutions in the 1920s, the Young Turks revolutions, okay? They've always wanted to be American allies. And why has this changed? Is it Erdogan or is it the fact that Europe won't let Turkey into, into the party? Well, it's, that's a very good question. The first one is there's no doubt that Europe's not allowing Turkey after years and years and years of the Turks trying to get in mm. has completely undermined what used to be called the Kemalist, which is, comes from Ataturk. So the Ataturk Kemalist, slightly pro-European element of Turkish politics. Now, after having been rebuffed 
many, many times those guys have lost their legitimacy on a number of fronts. But much more interestingly is that last month it was announced that Turkey bought a Russian air defense missile system, which is totally against uh, yeah. NATO's rules. Yeah. And yeah. basically, Turkey is playing a game as Turkey wants to be the leader of the Islamic world. Turkey's alliance in the Islamic world is very strange. It's with Qatar. Turkey and Qatar support Hamas in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip. It's this, And the Muslim Brotherhood. So that's one relationship as well. So you have the Israelis are going for an election. Yeah. The Turks are not too sure which way they're going to jump next. And that makes a massive, massive difference because, of course, the peace in Syria depends on Turkey because Turkey is the major power in the area and it's the major army in the area. Yeah. Then, of course, you have Saudi Arabia. You have the new MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the new boss in Saudi Arabia who is trying to win a war in Yemen but ultimately is trying to stamp his credibility on Saudi Arabia. And part of that means to be tough with Iran because yeah. that is an old, old conflict that we'll get onto and why that is in a second. And then finally, you have Iran itself. Iran itself, up until Trump pulled out of the nuclear deal, the reformers in Iran could say to the people, look, we now have a deal with the world signed by Obama. That deal is that we will... Not so much stop, but we will allow in all sorts of UN people to look at our nuclear program. But in return, the Americans have dropped this regime change idea. Yeah. So the Americans have dropped regime change. Now, of course, Trump has upset all that, and that has changed the dynamic. So within the four big powers, there are immediate reasons for fragility, not stability. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is you say, well, what's the relationship with them? The most interesting thing I've read for a long time is that last year in the Golan Heights, an Israeli field hospital treated and patched up Al-Qaeda fighters who were fleeing Syria in yes. order to patch them up to go back into Syria. So you have, hold on, Israel patching up Al-Qaeda fighters. Al-Qaeda are absolutely implacably opposed to Israel. Why is that? And it's because Israel's major fear is Hezbollah. Yeah. This is, Hezbollah is the military force the Israelis have not been able to destroy in South Lebanon. And who are Hezbollah supported by? Hezbollah are Shia Muslims supported by the Assad regime, which is supported by Russia, but ultimately absolutely supported by Iran. So what you can see is these various, when we look at the Middle East, we think Arabs, Jews, etc. no. These are huge changes, and they're all. Also, you see that Turkey is supporting Hamas in the Gaza Strip against Israel. Okay, like, hang on a second. Just talk to me about Turkey for a moment, because they seem to be the odd one out. Turkey seems to be playing both sides. They had a falling out with Russia, shooting down the plane in Syria, and that seems to be patched up pretty quickly. And I wonder, actually, does the recent arms deal have something to do with that? But tell me about their relationship with Saudi Arabia, particularly after the Khashoggi incident. Okay, it's, it's, a, it's a funny when you say, I remember a couple of months ago being in Istanbul, doing a bit of work there and talking to a friend of mine. And I was talking about Saudi Arabia to her. And this is after the Khashoggi murder. So this is after the okay. Saudi Arabians yep. actually murdered one of their own journalists in the embassy in Ankara. 
And she said, well, you know, the Arabs, you know, they're going to come and go. Like, we, they were really kind of subjects of us in the Ottoman Empire. When they, when they run out of oil, they'll be gone, you know, so don't worry about them. So there's a Turkish attitude, which is basically that the Arabs will come and go with oil, okay? And I remember listening to or reading a quote from one of the leaders of the United Arab Emirates, the guy who owns all the horses. What's his name? Muhammad uh, al-Maktoum. He was saying that, it was a great quote, he said, my great-grandfather rode a donkey, my grandfather rode a camel, my granddad rode in a car, I ride in a Bentley, my son will ride in a Bentley, his grandson will ride a camel, and his great-grandson will ride a donkey. What he was saying is when we run out of oil, we have nothing. So the Turks, it's a really nice thing. So the Turks are looking at the Arabs and saying, look, it's a long game here. But the most interesting thing now is that Erdogan is trying to figure out what's in the best interests of Turkey. Is it to be an American ally in the Middle East? Or is it to look at what happened since the war in Iraq? which was that once the Americans were beaten, which they were in Iraq, they pulled out. Second George Bush term pulls out. Obama spends his entire time pulling out of Iraq. That opens up a massive chasm in Iraq. In go the Russians. So suddenly the Turks don't have a real interest in being in violent opposition to the Russians because the Russians are now right on their doorstep in Iraq. So what you're seeing is the Turks are beginning to pivot away from the Americans. Also, historically, the Turks and the Persians, the Iranians, have been the two big tribes in the region. Yeah. And they, for hundreds, nay, thousands of years, have not got on very, very well. So what I'm saying is the Middle East is a bit like, remember I said the First World War started, it's actually started around here in August in Sarajevo. The alliances, which I would like to go into in this podcast, are as complex as they were in Europe before the First World War. And when people look back and they say, how did that happen? How did France end up fighting with England in Flanders against Germany to protect the Austrians in Sarajevo who were under threat from the Serbs? People say, how did that happen? It happened because everyone had a weird interest and nobody really understood the extent of the alliances. And I think if we tease out the alliances in the Middle East, we'll see something quite similar. So if you look then, Saudi Arabia has always been America's ally. Saudi Arabia is the home of Mecca. Saudi Arabia sees itself as the leader of the Arab nations in the region. Yeah. As a result of that, and as a result of its huge support from the United States, it has been able to create all sorts of mayhem and havoc all over the Middle East. The most recent example has been its supply lines supplying ISIS and Al-Qaeda, not just in Syria, but all over the world. And this is a fact. Nobody talks about it, but it is a fact that the major supply lines in terms of finance are the Saudis for this extreme Sunni terrorism, infidel fighting, freedom fighters, whatever you want to call them. Yeah, and the US just turns a blind eye to this. The US turns a blind eye to it. And then finally you have Israel. And Israel is afraid of Hezbollah, wants to neutralize Iran, And as a result, has ended up in a tacit understanding with Saudi Arabia that they're on the same side. Even though Saudi Arabia, which is the home of Wahhabi Islam, is implacably opposed to Israel. So what you can see is Turkey's confused, are changing. 
Yeah. Because there is no country called Iraq anymore, that is a huge, big minefield. In Syria, because there's no country like Syria anymore, you have the Assad. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Regime, which is supported by Iran, which is Shia, supporting Hezbollah. But there's a whole area between Damascus and Baghdad that's up for grabs. And of course, Iran is looking at all this. And when people say who was the major beneficiary of the American invasion in Iraq, which was ultimately to insert America into the Middle East, Iran is the major beneficiary because Iran is a Shia power. The government in Iraq is now Shia. The government in Syria is an Alawite Shia regime and Hezbollah are there in South Lebanon. So that's what they call this Shia arc between Tehran and the Mediterranean. So all this is in play. And the regional powers are all supported by a second layer of powers, which is the old geopolitical superpowers, where Russia is supporting Iran and America is supporting both Israel and Saudi Arabia. So what's in it for Russia? What's the story of Russia? Now, Years ago, when I went to Russia, I was always shocked by, and I shouldn't have been because it was their Vietnam, the impact of the loss in Afghanistan on the Russian psyche. So the Russians invaded Afghanistan in 1980. They pulled out in 1988. They were beaten by the Mushahideen. The Mushahideen were Saudi Arabian stroke American backed fighters, Sunni Muslims, Mm. fighters against the Russians. So you think about someone like Putin, Putin's worldview is shaped by his career. His career begins in the KGB and he starts in the early 80s and everything's going well. And then by the late 80s, the whole regime is falling apart. And of course, he blames Afghanistan. But he doesn't blame Afghanistan the place. He blames Afghanistan, the host nation, to the Mushahideen. Who are the Mushahideen? The Mushahideen are Saudi Arabians. So consequently, he has beef with the Saudi Arabians And ultimately then, Russia has always been Iran's mate. 
because as soon as America turned against Iran, Iran came looking for somebody for things like wheat, for example. Of course, yeah. Which they import huge, and they went to the Russians. So you have an amazing geostrategic thing going on. There's one other element to that as well. It might be a minor element, but in the long term, it probably is, is the fact that Russia has a port, controls a port in Syria, and gives them an opening to the Mediterranean. It certainly gives them an opening to the Mediterranean, but the, the big game for the Russians is the Caspian region. That's their neck of the woods, and Iran holds the key to that. So what you have, therefore, is Russia supports Iran unambiguously. Turkey is wavering. Israel is afraid of Hezbollah. And, of course, Israel, as we know, has gone to the right over the last 10 or 15 years. And Saudi Arabia wants to tell the Sunni world that it is the top dog. It is the main military, economic, political force. Now, therefore, in the last 10 years, last five years, two wars have been played out between all these. Syria was a war between Iran and Saudi Arabia that took place in another country. Why did it take place in Syria? Because the Americans destabilized the regime in Syria by turning Iraq into a failed state. Into that came the Iranians. That freaked out the Saudis, and the Saudis then increased their support to the anti-Assad forces in Syria. Now that war has migrated to Yemen. And the war in Yemen, which is particularly violent and unreported, is between Saudi Arabia and Syria. And again, it's a proxy war between Russia and the United States. So if you look at the four superpowers in the area are compromised and confused. And of course, the Soviets or the Russians, whatever you like to call them, and the Chinese are on the side of the Iranians as well. But they have done, as we said in the last podcast, they step out of it. They don't get involved, but tacitly they are on the side of the Iranians. So ultimately what you have is a global conflict playing out in a region that we know is deeply unstable. Okay. So who do you think actually holds the key to this conflict? Well, given the fact that Turkey have, you know, they they seem to be relatively new players. So the, the Turks, far from being newcomers, have been the major power players for many, many years. Turkey is only the Turkic, and what I mean Turkic as in the Turkish remnant of the Ottoman Empire, which was one of the great multicultural empires of the world, based out of Istanbul, Constantinople, which stretched as wide as, of course, Saudi Arabia, all through the Middle East, all the way up to almost where I am here in Croatia, because it was through Serbia and through Bosnia, and this isn't a great empire, but this, this empire disappears at the beginning of the 20th century. But they've always not so much had ambitions to reconquer, not at all, but they've always been the major player. And of course, Ataturk, we forget the father of Turkey, was a soldier, a soldier born in Thessalonica in Greece, and he was born into the retreating empire, and he reconstructed the Turkish nation. And they've always been America's allies. So, John, they've always been a massive, massive counterbalance to Iran. What has changed is the fact that the Turks now are no longer 100% on the American side. And that's a huge, huge difference. And maybe one of the reasons is that Erdogan sees himself as the savior of the Muslim nation. What Erdogan first presented himself was, and 
people forget this, was people thought, here's the guy who can combine Islamic observation, because he's a religious guy, with a modern state. And of course, that hasn't proved to be the case, because as he became more powerful, he became more Islamic, or maybe it is as he became more Islamic, he became more powerful. But they're not, so the Turks are not about to give away their position as major players. And then, of course, what happened? You have the war in Syria, which, let's not forget, was fermented by the United States and Britain, and to a lesser degree France, but the United States and Britain, under this crazy umbrella of the Arab Spring, which their idea is will ferment revolutions from Tunisia, from Algeria, Libya, Egypt, of course, and into Syria. And of course, when they arrive in Syria, they realize the Assad government, which is an Alawite government propped up by Shias, not Sunnis, is going to fight. And the Syrian army fight, and they fight to the end. And just when they're about to be beaten, the Russians come in because Russia has been an ally of Syria historically. And the one thing about the Russians is they don't give up their allies very quickly. They don't abandon their allies. So yeah. this, is, this is what's going on. And these are the various relationships. And they are much more significant than just the West and the East and the Arabs and the Jews and the oil producers and the oil consumers. There is a tapestry of vested interests, which if you surge in there, Aggressively, it is a hornet's nest that you kick at your peril. And then finally, John, the last different relationships which pit Saudi Arabia against Iran are the Sunni-Shia relationships within Islam. So Iran is a Shia country. Shias are a small minority of all Muslims, but they are the majority in Iran, they are a significant or a slight majority in Iraq. They are a minority in Syria and they are the majority in South Lebanon. And they are sometimes, not always, but sometimes at loggerheads with the Sunnis, who are largely the rest, and the Saudi Arabians are a strange hybrid of Sunnis called Wahhabism, which is a more extreme version. And if you want to think about it, the Shias are like Catholics, and the Sunnis are like Protestants, and the Wahhabis are like Protestant fundamentalists mm -hmm. in terms of how they interpret yeah. the scripture and Allah, etc. So therefore, you've got this other layer going on, which is the Shia-Sunni thing, which, again, we tend not to appreciate. But it's there, and it's significant, and it's deep, and it's part of the conflict. Yeah. And they're all the relationships, and that's why... When Trump goes in now, it's so dangerous because he doesn't seem to understand any of these relationships at all. Yeah, that's really interesting, Mike. And by the way, as you know, I, I worked for many years in the BBC World Service. Oh, yeah. And, and for most of it, I was in the Eurasia region. And one of my favorite departments to work with was the Persian section. And what I learned while I was there was that not only were they great fun, but I got a great insight into Iran and the people and the culture and so on. But one thing that really struck me was not only were the great fun, I found them to be incredibly smart, incredibly ambitious and very forward-looking, which is very different to the image that is portrayed in the media of Iranians being some sort of Quran-thumping extremists. You know, that's not the case at all. No, but I think, John, this is like you've, you've hit the nail on the head. So... Iran 
the Persians in Iran, the Iranian people, seem to have been so vilified by incessant propaganda that we forget that this is one of, again, the oldest civilizations in the world. Yeah. And the people who left Iran after the revolution were, again, also the liberal, tolerant, westernized, secular people who couldn't live under the various different ayatollahs. So the Iranian diaspora is an extraordinarily interesting one, and it's an extraordinarily cultured one. And again, what I'm just trying to say in this discussion, this conversation, is that these relationships, these cultures, these histories, these biases, these prejudices are all in what we know to be a an unbelievably unstable situation. And if you march in there with your gunboats, hoping that a country like Iran will just roll over, as Trump seems to be thinking, that's exactly what George Bush the Younger thought about Iraq. And of course, what happened in Iraq is the Americans got bogged down. A conflict with Iran would make the Iraq war look like a small skirmish because of all these relationships now. Because if you remember the first Iraq war, what George Bush Sr. did very well was he created a global coalition against Saddam. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. And it was very cleverly done and it was slowly done and it was pieced together and it was diplomatic. George Bush Sr. created a very, very subtle coalition. They talked to the Russians, they talked to everybody, they got everybody on side. So they, in a way, unraveled all these intricate relationships in order to isolate Saddam. What Trump is doing is precisely the opposite. He's inflaming all of these relationships. He's looking at an open wound and pouring salt on it. He's insulting the Chinese. He's insulting the Russians. He is supporting the Saudi Arabians even after they chopped up one of their own bloody journalists in an embassy. He is threatening sanctions against the Turks. He is inflaming in Syria all the various different powers that are there. So this is why I started by saying it's much more dangerous than we appreciate. Okay, so why is he doing that now? Because this could really backfire badly. Well, it could, and it probably will. But what Trump sees is the re-election of Donald Trump. And he's also informed by the John Bolton ideology that America can really tear up agreements like they just tore up the Iranian nuclear agreement. They can threaten various different regimes they don't like. And they can behave like a rogue state. And that's what they want to do. And they want to break down the entire post-Second World War alliance system whether it's in the European Union, whether it's saying to NATO members, look, if you don't want to pay your way, we are going to force you to pay for something that the United States had paid for for years, whether it's in Venezuela, whether it's with the Chinese, whether it's threatening India, whether it's threatening Russia, it's all about a totally different philosophy. So, John, there is an underlying ideology, which is America first. But ultimately, then, there is the election. America first should argue against any sort of invasion. 
or yeah. any sort of involvement. Yeah, of course. But yeah. Then there's the other. Then there's the other. Make America great again. And we've always, we've always said, great powers are great because they can project their power outside. They can push people around. They can say we're the new guys in the block or we're the big guys in the block. And I think that's what he's doing. He's probably hoping for a little confrontation in Iran, which will be low level and limited. And that's into which he's going to fight the election. Yeah, you see, I, I, that's the bit I find really odd because it's it, it could blow up in his face so easily. And like, granted, if he didn't like the nuclear deal that Obama did, that's fine. He could have just left that lie for now, get on with the rest of his policies and then come back to it when he's got a little bit more capacity. He's got no capacity as he just listed out all of those various conflicts and trade wars that he has going on at the moment. I just find the timing a bit bit odd, but but maybe Finn has a has a take on from the economics of that. Yeah, because the economics is always fascinating. The oil is fascinating. Finn, what's the state of play with oil and Iran and the region and how much that region produces and what happens if the region goes into some sort of geopolitical military meltdown? Yeah, so, I mean, there's some data here from the US Energy Information Administration, the EIA. That gives you a pretty, pretty decent lay of the land in terms of the basic basic dynamics of the market, which is supply and demand. So if we want to look at in terms of production and look at, we'll say, petroleum and other liquids, the US is the largest oil producer in the world. And they produce just shy of around 18 million barrels a day which is 18% of global production. And that's a position they've held since they ramped up production under this shale revolution, uh, surpassing the Saudis back in 2013. Now, if we want to round out the, the other top 10 producers of oil, the, it's the usual suspects. So it's the Saudis who account for about 12% of global production, just ahead of the Russians on 11%. Then you've got Canada, China, Iraq. They all contribute 5%. Iran and the UAE are another 4% each, and then Brazil and Kuwait to round off the top 10. Now, throw them all together, those 10 countries account for 70% of global production of oil. Now, that's petroleum and liquids. The picture shifts slightly when you talk about crude oil specifically, but basically the main takeaway is that the US is the largest producer. Uh, They became the largest producer of crude in 2018, again surpassing the Saudis and the Russians for the first time in about two decades. So... That's half of the supply side. The other half you need to look at is reserves. So the top 10 countries with the largest oil reserves in 2019, you've got Venezuela up there at the top. It's 302 billion barrels. Uh, Saudi Arabia, just below them, 266, followed by Canada, Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, UAE, Russia, Libya. Down number nine is the United States with just 42 billion barrels. So that should give you an idea of the supply side of the oil market and how things stand currently. Um, you want to flick over to the demand side and why people get worried about any disruptions to the oil supply or to the oil market from some Trump interference in the Middle East. You've got the US is the largest consumer with 19 or about 20 million barrels per day, which is 20% of world total, uh, followed by China, 13%, India, Japan, Russia, Saudi. Again, the usual suspects. So putting that all together... Basically, there's fear about Trump interfering in the Middle East because obviously you disrupt supply. The U.S. is the biggest consumer, also the biggest producer. But that's not all that's going on in the market there. You've got OPEC maneuvering. They've been limiting output since I think around last December. They enacted their first uh, production cuts. So there's a lot going on in terms of 
this coalition of OPEC countries and Russia and Mexico, who aren't OPEC members, but have joined in the gang to try and cut production in order to fight back against the US and essentially boost prices, which is short term strategy, not clear that's going to work in the long run, but that's kind of the lay of the land at the moment. Well, it's fascinating, Finn, that you mentioned uh, Russia and getting involved because a final area of all this, John, is Russia has recently joined with the European Union in trying to make sure that sanctions against Iran don't work. And this is a new departure that the European Union spent a long, long time trying to put together the Iran nuclear deal. And it spent a long, long time trying to reassure the Iranians that if they dropped their nuclear ambitions, which are ultimately against Israel, that Iran could come out of the cold. It could become a normal country. It could begin to trade. It could begin to open. And ultimately, European investment in Iran's oil industry, which they need because their oil industry has been absolutely starved of capital since sanctions would begin to flow into Iran. The Iranians would stabilize themselves. The Americans would no longer need regime change. And ultimately, Iran could come back into the fold as a country that the world does business with. What Trump has done is he said, none of that. We are going to strangle Iran. We are going to pursue regime change. And we are going to ultimately get our way in a country that America has not got its way in since it toppled the legitimate president of Iran in 1953. In 1979, the American-backed Shah was deposed in the revolution. And since 1979, America has not got its way in Iran. Ultimately, it seems to me that Trump wants to be the man who gets his way in Iran. People are worried that basically Trump is doing Israel's dirty work and sucking America into a conflict with Iran that the only beneficiary will be Israel, and that's one angle. But to conclude, what we have yet again is something we've seen over the last three or four years is the increasing isolation of the United States due to Trump's inability to understand that the alliances in the world are there for a reason. And the reason is the world is complicated, it is interrelated, it is interdependent, and places like the Middle East are far more fragile than he could ever contemplate. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, before we let you go, I want to give you a sneak preview of some premium content which you can access via Patreon. I think there's something we ought to hear from the silent Trumpers. These are the people who never tell you, but they vote Trump. And when you look at what are they about, and interestingly, the numbers of African-Americans, and particularly African-American women, who voted in favor of Trump is, was much larger than anyone ever imagined possible. And what I think it is, their view is, Washington is a drag on the economy. Washington raises taxes, Washington has rules and regulations, and it's a drag on my ability to generate income for my family. And so they say, I don't like what he stands for, I don't like what he says, but his policies benefit my business. Those people 
will go, I'll hold my nose because that outcome is better for my ability to put food in the refrigerator. And I think with populism, we are focusing too much on the person and not enough on one of the underlying causes because the people who represent the populist view will come and go. But if this pressure that I can't feed my family, I can't get food in the refrigerator persists, then populism will persist. If you enjoyed that, you can hear the full episode and much more by joining us on Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. See you.